This is a Federal News Network podcast. An important part of the Postal Service's 10-year reform plan notched forward in Congress when the House Oversight and Reform Committee approved the Postal Service Reform Act. The bipartisan legislation is the Postal Service's only legislative request in that reform plan. USPS executives say the bill, if enacted, would save the agency $58 billion over 10 years. It would end the requirement that USPS prefund retiree health benefits, and it would require future retirees to enroll in Medicare. But lawmakers are also tinkering with other USPS reform ideas. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. A Postal Service reform bill with a real shot at becoming law means compromises and negotiations between Democrats and Republicans in Congress, several unions, and USPS management, plus mailers, industry associations, and the public. The whole deal falls apart without everyone at the table supporting the plan. Coming up with solutions to the problems that face the Postal Service requires us to set aside politics and get the job done right for the American people. That's House Oversight and Reform Committee Ranking Member James Comer, a co-sponsor of the 2021 Postal Service Reform Act. The bill is also co-sponsored by another Republican on the committee, Congresswoman Virginia Fox, along with Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney and Government Operations Subcommittee Chairman Jerry Connolly. The committee last week unanimously approved the bill in a markup. The bill now heads to the House floor for a vote. Congress has introduced many bills like it in recent years, but Comer says the Postal Service Reform Act might succeed where others have fallen short. I believe today's bill, a bipartisan, realistic bill with a good chance of becoming law, fits that description of doing work for the people in this country. Now, to be clear, it's not a bill that gives everyone everything they want. The bill has support from Postmaster General Louis DeJoy who has made the bill an integral part of his 10-year reform plan. But Maloney said it took a lot of wrangling with members to get a final version of the bill to look like something everyone could agree on. Mr. Comer is a very tough negotiator, but he shares my desire to protect and improve the Postal Service. So after many, many weeks of discussions, we were able to come to a bipartisan agreement. Republicans on the committee have some reservations about eliminating a 2006 mandate for USPS to prefund retiree health benefits well into the future and integrate future retirees into Medicare. But they went along with it because of the USPS 10-year plan. Many of those same members were less receptive to a postal reform deal with former Postmaster General Megan Brennan, who often hinted at progress on a 10-year plan, but didn't release the plan prior to her retirement last year. Comer said Republicans insisted on language that would require the Postal Service to stand up an online dashboard that would give the public a look at on-time delivery metrics by zip code. It's one thing for the Postmaster General to release a plan, but Republicans demand that the Postal Service follow through and inform Congress of that plan's implementation. Comer says minority members also fought for assurance from USPS that it wouldn't significantly raise postage rates for newspapers, magazines, and catalogs to make up for a decline in first-class mail. The bill today is a compromise. Republicans will support remedying the present financial condition of the Postal Office in return for a future in which Congress doesn't have to give it a bailout. And I believe we've struck a good deal for everyone and ushers in a new era for the Postal Service based on reliability, transparency, and affordability. Fox said the bill, together with the USPS 10-year plan, offer a bipartisan path to reform that previous sessions of Congress have failed to deliver on. Common ground is often elusive. 
and this committee has spent many years searching for it, particularly in regard to the Postal Service. I'm proud to say that the Postal Service Reform Act, while not perfect by any means, but the act before the committee today is a step in the right direction to help the Postal Service fulfill its mission for years to come. Texas Republican Pete Sessions says the negotiations between Democrats and Republicans on this bill should serve as a model for how the committee works on other issues. But he also expressed reservations about rising postal rates that USPS says are imminent. We've got to make sure stamps don't go to 60 cents, don't go to 70 cents, don't go to 80 cents. For all that talk about compromise and bipartisanship, the committee also passed a second postal reform bill with plans Democrats have for USPS. Republicans oppose the bill and say they're unwilling to negotiate on the original text of the bill or its amendments. The Postal Service Improvement Act would require all mail-in ballots in federal elections include a trackable barcode and other design features that would make it easier for postal employees to track and sort mail-in ballots. It would also grant 12 weeks of paid parental leave to all USPS and Postal Regulatory Commission employees. The Postal Employee Paid Leave Act passed in December 2019, granting paid leave to most federal employees for the birth, adoption, or fostering of a new child. But Maloney says USPS employees were left out of that deal. We now have the opportunity to correct that, and now by providing the equal benefit that the nearly 500,000 postal employees deserve. Comer says he opposes the bill on two fronts. He says the election provision adds too much federal intervention into state and local run elections, and the paid leave provision would add costs that the Postal Service can't afford. He says USPS estimates paid leave would cost the agency between 200 to $600 million a year. I believe this bill, the Postal Service Improvement Act, is a bridge not only too far, but even a step backwards. The Postal Service should not be forced to absorb the cost of expanding additional benefits to its employees, especially not with their dire financial challenges. It's for these reasons that I oppose this bill and urge my colleagues to do the same. House and Senate lawmakers also seek to overturn a ban that prevents the Postal Service from shipping alcohol to households. Congresswoman Jackie Speer and Congressman Dan Newhouse introduced the USPS Shipping Equity Act, which would overturn laws on the books since Prohibition. Senator Jeff Merkley is introducing companion legislation. The lawmakers say their bill would give USPS a chance to compete in a $24 billion a year industry. Speer, a member of the Oversight Committee, introduced the bill after she tried to add it to the Postal Service Improvement Act as an amendment. We can't have the Postal Service become break-even or even profitable if we keep tying its hands. We also have an interest in protecting small businesses, microbreweries, small retail establishments, small wineries. They cannot ship their product because they either have to have the sanctions of the wholesalers or they don't ship. So this particular amendment unshackles the Postal Service and allows them to be able to ship wine and spirits and beer. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration 
And he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide 
in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce, uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, 
just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. The people who looked through 200 resumes to fill a job also waited 40 minutes for their internet to dial up. You don't wait 40 minutes for your internet to dial up. You use Upwork to quickly hire talent. This is how we work now. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.